welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you. You also. So what's new? Anything? Well, um, besides the fact that we're still currently in the middle of winter, I'm not sure when this is going to drop, but I'm already ready for some warm weather. It definitely depletes my mood. I can tell you yeah. that. February, this When the snow starts to melt and it's ugly, dirty, dirty, uh, dirty grass... It's really, it's a downer. I know. So this morning I heard something on the news that it was really kind of funny, not funny. It's a a project, this woman, I forget actually where she was from, but it was a piece about a woman that is organizing other, it was all women, other look like young mothers to get together in a park or somewhere away from families, from their families and say one, two, three, and scream, and scream, scream. They okay. all just screamed as loud as they could together to get out the frustration of COVID being either locked in with your kids or the mask uh, on or off situation. That young parents are just really beyond stressed out, and yeah. this is like this cathartic exercise. And she is the one who's organizing these and they all seem to get a lot out of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they screamed once and then someone said, let's do it again. <laughs> I, you know, when you first said it, I thought it was kind of funny, but now I can actually yeah. see the advantage to doing it. I might do that on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, uh, actually a good idea. And I, I thought of how, um, our recent guest on Behind Our Door, Dr. Shahana Alibai, gave some really good wellness tips that uh, are, are worth listening to just to put yourself in a better state of mind. Yeah, she was super insightful on, you know, finding help for yourself and getting the right supports in place. I really found it advantageous, even in my current situation, right? Yeah, I did too. I felt as though I thought about that that interview with her for a long time after. She, it was a good it was a, a good lesson. Yeah. A lot of good things put in there just for getting through every day in a little bit better of a way. I agree. We are so glad to introduce our introduce our guest of the day, Nina Henry. Nina Henry is an addiction specialist and mental health educator in Chicago at JCFS, Jewish Child and Family Services, in practice for over 30 years. For 20 of those years, she supervised Recovery Point, a program of community counseling centers of Chicago, where the primary focus was serving clients who were duly diagnosed. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a certified alcohol and drug counselor. We're so lucky to have her here. Welcome, Nina Henry. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. I feel honored that you asked me to, to come and visit with you. Yeah, I'm so, we're so glad. I, Nina and I know each other. Uh, for a number of years, yes. working on a the same mental health foundation in on a planning committee, and uh, always so enjoy your company, Nina. So gotcha. so glad to see you and introduce you to Julie. Yes. Hey, Julie. It's nice to make your acquaintance. Yours also. I'm I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're gonna give us some education about this because it's such a hot topic, especially yeah. with um, 
the opioid addiction going on around our yes, country. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I, it's frightening. I, you know, I um, on my way here, of course, while I was driving here, I'm thinking of all the. I mean, it's such a huge topic. I know really, that it's hard to sort of narrow down, but you know, I figure I, I've got to sort of give some lip service to the fact that we're all worried about uh, fentanyl and opiate addiction. And I just sort of want to give a shout out to everyone that it is now in everything that's out there. You probably know this in your role, uh, Julie. It's in cocaine. It's in heroin. It's in everything. everything. And so there's no, I mean, not that there was ever any safe drug you could buy on the street, but mm-hmm. now it's it's more life-threatening than ever. So it's I just so wanted scary. to sort of give lip service to that. I know that's not exactly what we planned, but no, I just feel so like it's so scary. I mean, this is such an out-of-control <laughs> time. Yeah, Drugs never are, you know, and to this degree, addiction is an out-of-control situation, but this is really a dimension of scary. Yeah. That is, uh, wow. Yeah, 30% increase in overdoses. Wow. In the past. How many years? Year. This, just the, just past, the past year? Just the past year. Do you think wow. that's tied to the pandemic? I mean, do you? Absolutely. So so yeah. how do you think the pandemic has, like you've been doing this for 30 years. Right. So how do you look at the last year, two years, year and a half as changing? Most of all, it's the extent to which people have been isolated. And I don't mean just, you know, we, we worry about teens and that they're not able to socialize. So that's one population that's very adversely affected by being restricted by the pandemic. But then also think about older adults, people 55 and up, especially the older, older adults who are like 75 to 85, is there at home alone. And yes, older adults do abuse substances, in particular opiates, as a matter of fact, opiate medications that they take for things like arthritis and and other chronic illnesses and Mm -hmm. problems, cancer. Um, And so they're stuck uh, you know, at least initially. I mean, fortunately, a lot of the 12-step recovery programs and the various support groups and fellowships ultimately figured out that they needed to do something. And of course, we all got used to using Zoom and other similar platforms. Mm-hmm. So most meetings are now online. Another thing that like put fear in my heart was you know, because of the restrictions, uh, you know, due to you know, masking and hygiene and all of that associated with the pandemic, were the residential treatment programs going to close? I mean, I knew the yeah. hospitals were going to stay open, but yeah. would they have available beds? Would the, the good news is, is they, they made a pretty quick turnaround and you know, pretty much the entire pandemic treatment has been available at all levels of care admittedly outpatient again is almost all telehealth so think about the person who already had a hard time deciding to go to treatment and now the only way they're going to get to know their counselor or other people in the group is you know the hollywood squares of zoom Mm -hmm. and and not being able to really have a real relationship form which is critical for any kind of psychotherapy to be successful right to have a relationship with the other people you're in treatment with or the professional who's providing the treatment. So, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has played a yeah, critical role tough. in the increase. Yeah, my in son was in residential treatment when the pandemic hit, and oh I <laughs> was scared to death that they were going to send him home. Because, you know, when it first yeah. started, we knew nothing about it. And I thought, what do I do? What, what do, do where do, 
do I keep him? How do I treat him? How do I get him, you know, counseling, therapy? Like, <laughs> it put me in an um, emotional... But he was he able to stay? Yes. Thank God. Yes. Yeah, it's, really, it's really amazing that they, they pulled it together to not have a t- an entire catastrophe of people having to leave, like mm-hmm. your son, Julie, or people not being able to enter. Um, I feel like that's pretty amazing. That yeah. And, you know, with that first, especially the first nine months when everybody was completely careful and shut into their house and, you know, quantities of people together was such a restriction. It's amazing that that wasn't more of a catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know, it, you know, at least in my own agency, we got together immediately and thought, what do we do? Let's let's think about how people might be Im- impacted. And we began doing things like, in fact, recently we did one of these, we called them evenings of support for people grieving during the pandemic. And in particular, oh, we recently did one, an evening of grieving overdose. Oh, wow. wow. That's pandemic. so smart. Yeah. And, and it so was, needed. It was huge. We had, and you know, because again, we're a Jewish organization, though we don't only treat Jews, I want to make sure that that's clear that we really have our doors are open yes. to anyone who needs mm-hmm. care. But because we, you know, in my division, we have some obligation to meet the needs of the Jewish community. We always include some sort of Jewish spiritual component mm-hmm. to those evenings. But, you know, it's things like saying what you're feeling is not unusual. We sort of try to normalize the idea and this that... And is, this is one evening or an ongoing group? Well, evening of su- evenings of support have been oh, evenings. Um, okay. ongoing. You know, they're not like every week or every... We try and do it seasonally so mm-hmm. that's what we've started nice. doing so you know we had a winter one and now we're a spring one's coming up so so necessary yeah. and we had one related to suicide as well wow yeah wow that's really uh that's really such a need it is i yeah. mean yeah. for people that are in the same boat grieving over the same kind of mm-hmm. root of their loss yeah and people of course felt like I felt connected for the first time mm-hmm. in forever. You know, yes. I felt like I wasn't alone. And, like, you know, that's such an important message to say, you know, one out of four people suffer with mental health problems. Yes. And it's probably increased during the pandemic to know that you're not alone, that you're not the only person yeah. dealing with this is huge. Because you feel like you're alone. Yeah. Um, and I think putting the addiction on top of the mental health bumps it up to a new level. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it frightens, it frightened me. My son started at a young age using marijuana and it put him into a different place. It, it was, it was not good. I know, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're, we're in the day and age, right? That cannabis is legal and if you can smoke it, it helps anxiety and it helps. And, and I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm just saying it doesn't for him. You right. Know, certain of these mental illnesses yeah. it just you know, is not good for. Yes. Well, and that gets us to the sort of odd and scary synergy of dual diagnosis mm-hmm. because... Why don't you just define for the listening yeah. audience dual Thank diagnosis? <laughs> just before, that because it's such, yes. it's such an important topic, just so that from the beginning they know. Sure. So essentially, dual diagnosis means that one person is having one or more disorders all at the same time. So they could be having bipolar disorder, cocaine use disorder, 
and a personality disorder of some kind, so that everything is concurrent. It's possible to have one start and the other start afterward, but dual diagnosis means that they're both happening, or all of them are happening at the same mm-hmm. time. And it actually can mean there's also a medical issue happening concurrently as well. So that's, that's really technically what's meant by dual diagnosis, where it gets very confusing for the person, the parent or the person suffering from these issues is where does one start and the other one end? What happened first, especially with, I guess, younger people or maybe not, of somebody who's using drugs and then you realize they were self-medicating, as we say, and you think, well, did they first have the depression or bipolar disorder or whatever it was, self-medicate, now they're an addict to whatever drug? Do you ever, you ever figure it out? Is it just a vicious cycle of events always? Well, I, I think the best way to illustrate these kinds of things is to tell a story. Okay. okay. So go one ahead. of my we favorites. Love, we love stories. Oh, yeah, we like a good story. <laughs> so this is when I was still working at C4 Recovery Point, where I was managing a clinical supervisor. But I also carried a caseload, which was sort of a deal I made with the folks that owned the agency, is that this was really important to me to continue practice because... That made me a better supervisor, I thought. So I had a client who reported initially that her primary problem was cocaine addiction, cocaine use disorder. And as I got to know her, I, it, I certainly in her assessment, I also thought, oh, there's something else going on. You know, the, she's speedy even when she's not on cocaine, which is a stimulant. Mm-hmm. You know, she spoke fast. She had trouble sitting still. She was always really moving around like crazy. And, you know, was talking about how all of this interfered with being able to work, maintain relationships, all the things that are indicators, certainly of a substance use disorder, but also mental health problems. I mean, her functioning was just really blown apart. And I thought... It's not just the cocaine. There's more to this picture. So one of the questions that I have learned to routinely ask of clients that I treat is I said, I asked, what's your relationship with cocaine? You know, how is it, how do you get along with cocaine? Why is it important to you? What, how, what makes it work for you? And she said something that was completely counterintuitive. She said, it calms me down and wow, I can get my work done. She says, it's when I'm not on cocaine that life blows apart. So I started thinking about that. And if if you think long enough, you you don't have to be a professional to know this, is that people that have attention deficit Mm -hmm. hyperactivity disorder are given stimulants to treat their ADHD. Right. So I thought, um, we're going to have you see our psychiatrist. And sure enough... We, and was, and it was, we really did this very carefully. I said, is there any medication for ADHD, for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that doesn't involve stimulants? And the doctor said, it just so happens, this was several years ago, there's a new drug out called Stratera, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that anyone can take it. I need to be careful as mm-hmm. a professional to say right. not everyone should be taking Stratera, but this was what they prescribed her. And I'm telling you, it was, you know, I can't remember how long it took for the Stratera to take effect, but she felt she no longer needed the cocaine. She was able to, you know, she had a a dog walking business and she was able to resume her work. 
her partner was no longer ready to throw her out. Um, everything sort of resolved. So this was, uh, to me, is such a great example of how the two things yeah. can really um, overlap in such a way that it makes it really hard. You know, or or the, the constant report I get from people who are... Um, have alcohol use disorder is they'll say I'm medicating my depression, which is sort of ironic because alcohol is a central nervous system mm-hmm. depressant. Yeah. And so, you know, I, you know, and again, that question, what's your relationship? You know, that's the answer I get when I say, what's your relationship with alcohol? How does it work for you? And when they tell me they're medicating their depression, I'll say, well, I can see that that was the coping skill that you chose at this time. I said, but our job together, because it's not making your depression better, it's probably making it worse, you know, and on top of that, it's probably going to cause some anxiety when you're withdrawing from it. Mm -hmm. So let's find other ways to cope. Let's, you know, and and that can take a long time. You know, that's the one thing also to be aware of with dual diagnosis is probably takes longer to treat it if someone and there's frankly not that many people that just have a flat out straight substance use disorder without any other problems i always i always assume there's some kind of mental illness attached to that is that a bad thing to say i always tell people that if they have a loved one who's using whatever the substance is, that there's probably an underlying mental health issue. Do you think I, that's true? Do you am I wrong about that? You know, I, no. I, I, <laughs> how do I how do I address this? Yes. <laughs> so, what I would say is, you're not 100 percent wrong. Mm-hmm. I would say, in my experience, anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of the clients I treated had not necessarily an underlying disorder. They may have. The first thing might have been the substance use, which for a variety of reasons then snowballed into another disorder. So as an example, um, if you, by virtue of your substance use, and maybe that's the only thing that's really troubling you when you become troubled, is because you're spending all your money on, say, whatever the substance is, methamphetamines, you lose your housing. Well, people who are homeless experience all kinds of trauma. Things get Mm -hmm. stolen, they get beaten up, they Mm -hmm. get sexually harmed. I mean, just all, you know, lots of things can happen to a homeless person that will then compound the already bad substance use disorder with a mental health issue. So, again, it's hard to know what came first, chicken Chicken or the egg, egg, right? What um, What about the percentage of the genetic factor in addiction? Um, I don't know what the percentage is. Um, it, the way that we usually talk about it is we talk about predisposition. Mm-hmm. So as an example, my maternal uncle was an alcoholic. And there was a chance if things had gone sideways during my upbringing, you know, something happened in the environment, maybe my parents, they didn't, but let's say my parents, you know, there was domestic violence in the household. That might have kicked off my existing predisposition to alcohol use disorder. Triggered it. Right? Like Might have triggered yeah. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, yeah, so I, I think it's not a done deal. Just because you have a relative, rather, whether it's a close relative or a, you know, one that's several generations removed, that 
predisposition exists, it's really dependent on what happens as you're growing up, as you're developing, you know, or maybe not even as you're growing up. Maybe you have a horrible loss in your mid-20s or your Mm mid-30s or even as an older adult, and that, you know, then causes things to move forward. And Mm -hmm. that's true for for mental health as well, but I think that it's sort of a stronger marker with some mental health issues. I think there's some that are passed down more readily than others. In my experience, um, depressive disorder being one. And that, you know, who knows? I mean, again, could, is it the environment? If you yeah. were raised by a, a mother who's depressed all the time, is it the environment? Or is it the fact that you genetically have that marker yeah. for depression? It's hard to know. That's a really tough one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think you have to necessarily know the answer, but you have to figure out how to treat it, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Which, of course, <laughs> oh, don't get me started. <laughs> um, actually, when I was thinking about coming here today, I was thinking about all the mistakes I've made and other people have made over, you know, decades Uh, in treating co-occurring or dual-diagnosed problems. So, again, a story. When when we were first opening Recovery Point, uh, the program I ran for Mm -hmm. almost 20 years, um, we would have an hour-and-a-half-long assessment that we would do with each client we saw, and if the clinician that was doing the assessment saw that there seemed to be some sort of psychiatric something or other lingering, um, that we would refer them to the psychiatrist. So I had a person who clearly had a history of depression, was using alcohol in an, an addictive way. Um, and so I said, by virtue of what I had been trained to do up to that point, I said to the psychiatrist, well, of course, this person is still actively drinking, so we may have to wait a while before you can treat this person for depression. And the psychiatrist, who was a fairly progressive person, said, that's cruel. How could, how could you, how could you Mm -hmm. say that? Mm -hmm. And I had come previously from another um, organization that would never treat them concurrently. Mm -hmm. They would only, they, you had to become abstinent from your substance of choice before you could get psychiatric care. And I'll just never forget. I mean, she looked at me square in the eye and she said, how could you be so cruel? And I thought, well, that's the last thing I want to be. And Nina, not you. You're you're definitely not cruel. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I certainly do. And it it was a really big moment for me. And as time progressed, I really realized that the absolute best and now state-of-the-art way to treat someone is to treat both at the same time. There, you know, For your listeners who like to know, where am I getting all this information and how do mm-hmm. I know this stuff? One person who I think of all the time when I think about this particular aspect of dual diagnosis is a guy named Kenneth Minkoff, who developed um, integrated systems of care. And that's sort of, you know, jargon in my industry, right? We talk about integrated systems of care. And um, again, another story brought to mind is, um, oh, about five to 10 years into my work with Recovery Point, uh, the CEO of that agency came to my office with a visitor from the United Kingdom. And they were talking about the differences in our, the way we treated people with substance use and 
mental health problems. And the guy from the UK, where, as you're probably aware, they have universal medical mm-hmm. care and right. mental health care, one-stop shop, right? And he said, well, when we're treating someone with these problems, we meet around a table. There's usually a law enforcement official, maybe someone from child welfare, if that's something that's going on with the case. So, you know, if there's domestic violence, some sort of domestic violence specialist, a psychiatrist, a mental health specialist, and an addiction. You know, in other words, like a multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. right? And prepare to make a real treatment plan that's individualized and meets the client exactly where they are at. So... Needless to say, the CEO of C4 Recovery Point, I mean, he said, wow, this is like fantastic. And we did, to his credit and to the credit of that agency at that time, really began to try and be thoughtful about those things. But the system doesn't always, here in the United States, doesn't always support that. Um, So uh, the thing that they did do that I thought was wonderful, and I, I don't know if C4 still does this, but they actually... Uh, coupled with uh, Erie Healthcare, oh yeah, and uh, and also Heartland Alliance, and they had nurses, medical staff on site, and um, we also always worked with parole agents, probation folks. You know, we we were always trying to bring everybody in so mm-hmm. that someone would get really holistic care. Yeah, the best care possible. Yeah, it's the whole the, the whole picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that you really, you know, because who knows what the biggest problem is at any given time. It may, may be homelessness. I mean, I remember a guy coming in t- to see me. His drug of choice was uh, LSD, and he'd been bouncing around into in and out of psychiatric hospitals because when you take LSD, you become psychotic, right? You begin to have hallucinations. You see things. You hear things. So to anybody who doesn't know that you've taken LSD, you look like you're hallucinating and that you maybe have schizophrenia and they quick hospitalize you. So uh, what happened with this poor fellow is he ended up, by the time he got to us, is he, he was homeless. And he said, before you do anything else, first of all, if you try and get me into a psychiatric hospital, I'm going to run out of here like my, with my head on fire. I said, I'm, I'm not going to stay. He said, secondly, if I'm not helped with housing, how the heck can I come to treatment and really pay attention? How can I really be? I thought, well, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's yeah. actually a, that's a logical mm-hmm. statement. Yeah, he, he didn't sound psychotic to yeah, me. Yeah, right. That's I mean, I said, I said, of course, I know you can't sort of give up LSD just like that. I said, but you know, I'd really like to help you minimize that because that's what's getting you into trouble getting you into psychiatric units and and keeping you out of steady housing so let's work together but the housing uh, he really i mean he would hold it over my head he'd say what's the deal with my housing you know? <laughs> <laughs> and i'd say i'm working on smart it. smart man <laughs> he was he is did yes. you find him housing oh yeah no okay. I, we we had i mean at first it was just shelter because right. we, we needed a little i said you know give me a little lead time here right. it takes a you know now it's probably even harder to get permanent supportive housing for someone who has no income mm-hmm. um, huge problem in I mean, this country oh, horrible i mean back then it was a little easier there was a little bit more money in the coffers but you know yeah i'm gonna have to take a drink of water oh you're fine <laughs> so my my question to you is being that we're kind of in a different 
generation, right? With social media and access to drugs and stuff like that. I, I think we've mentioned before how kids get on Snapchat and they can order drugs to their door. And, and it's so dangerous. So how do parents or caregivers know their loved one is using you know, you're going to hate my answer because it seems <laughs> it's going to seem so simplistic. But the main thing that I counsel folks to do is if it isn't safe to come to your parent about what's going on in your life, there's something. I mean, it's normal for an adolescent to maybe be a little secretive, but the extent to which they're secretive is the extent to which they don't feel safe to talk to a parent. And, you know, I remember, you know, asking my daughter, oh, I have two daughters, uh, they're both adults now, one's 30, the other one's 36. But when they were teenagers, I'd say, you know, so, so are you, you know, so what's going on? Like, you know, are your friends inviting you to use marijuana? Or, you know, are you going to parties where there's drinking? And I would say to them, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. You also know what I do for a living. Yeah. I said, mm-hmm. you know, and I imagine, Julie, you're in law enforcement. They know that you know, too. Right. Um, I'd say, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, I know it's hard to tell a parent. I said, but, you know, no judgment, no punishment for you to just tell me the truth. I think that's that's the first and most important thing a parent needs to do is to make it safe for a kid to talk about what's That's really going good on. advice because I think it sounds so simple what you're saying, but <laughs> parents might just be observing and saying, I'm not going to say anything unless I they get in trouble. A lot of time it takes the crisis to say, what are you doing? You know, yeah, yeah. What, where were you? Yeah. But to just come out and ask like you did and there's is, good it's good reason. I mean, I know about heroin as an example. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, what it is, what it does to you, all of those things. And I remember giving exactly that advice at a parent group that I was in. And one parent said, Well, I'm afraid to ask about something like heroin because then I'm gonna have to tell you know, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what to say to them. And, you know, I said, Well, you, you certainly you know it's illegal. You know that it can kill people. I mean, there's a lot of things you do know, and you don't need to be an expert. You need to be a loving parent who cares about what happens to your child. Right. Um, and, you know, the relief on her, her, her face just sort of brightened because she, that was what was keeping her from talking to her child about, about these issues. The other thing sure. that, that I kind of typically say, frankly, I say to kids, but I say it to parents too, is... Let's break this down. You know, I'm not here to scare anybody straight. Basically, a substance is a substance is a substance. Heroin is a substance. Lollipops are a substance. (laughs) Sandpaper is a substance. It's how you use it, how you think about it, why you choose to use it. Those are the things that are important. And that, you know, so when a parent finds out that a child of theirs is drinking, you know, drank at a party, again, so maybe not this particular formulation, which is what's your relationship with alcohol, but what made it important for you to try, you know, was there some social pressure? What was going on that made you feel like you needed to drink? Mm-hmm. You know, but the I, honesty and open conversation is my sort of bottom line recommendation. And I, I do feel like, uh, like Julie brought up, our generation, the current generation, um, I also have kids late, late, uh, mid to upper twenties, thirties, and uh, 
So it's not like they're teenagers. But compared to when we were kids, hmm. someone on our show once said the funniest on this, on behind our door said the funniest thing. When she was a kid, she said I was more scared of my parents than the police. That was my generation. Love my <laughs> folks. But we, you know, we, we would hide everything. Mm-hmm. This generation is more open about everything. I think that would be that's a that's great thing. advice to have this be a part of that, even though mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, just don't think to bring it up unless they see something right. or unless it turns into a crisis. Now, what would you say with all um, the out of control, you know, online, social media, getting drugs delivered to the front door situation? If you don't realize this is happening, you're a parent that works, you're not home when those packages come and the kids after school can get this and that. What are some symptoms in, let's say, teenagers that parents could observe are happening that would be a red flag? So um, isolating is always the first, you know. I mean, lots of kids, I remember when, you know, both of my daughters, almost like the minute they turned like nine, all of a sudden the bedroom door was shut. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's normal, that's to be expected. But when they're isolating not just from you, the parental units, but from their friends, that's a big one, right? When all of a sudden social or changing friends, or yes, mm-hmm. different different friends, yes, of course. You know, all, all of a sudden the nice, clean cut kids are now the goths, which doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that they're the ones that are no, but know, the abusing. kids they grew up with, maybe now they're change, not hanging out with, and you're right. wondering, it's a little strange. Yeah, I yeah. would think it's a little. Yeah, strange. that's a really good uh, example, um, and also just. The things that they used to have enthusiasm for, you know, like they were really into sports and now they're kind of dropping away from that. Obviously, you know, grades are, you know, a tell, it can be a telltale mm-hmm. sign. Um, and sometimes loss of enthusiasm for school is a precursor. Like I'm right. just bored and I need something scintillating to do that might be a precursor to using mm-hmm. substances. You know, so, so it might be an after effect that their grades are slipping or it might be something that was happening beforehand because you know, this, um, maybe I need more stimulation, more challenge, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Or angry outbursts? Yeah, yes. Um, it's interesting because that was actually to sort of move into a slightly different topic. Uh, my older daughter had some issues related to depression, and she didn't look depressed like an adult would look depressed. A, a, an adult would have, you know, a sad face, maybe a really blunted affect, which means that no emotion, or they might be crying a lot. Adolescents expressed depression and other mental health problems very differently. She would have angry outbursts. She mm-hmm. wasn't using substances, not in a worrying way. <laughs> she wasn't completely devoid right. of substance mm-hmm. use, but that was not the problem. But the angry outbursts is what led us to, to ask her, you know, what's going on? What, why are you upset? And we ultimately found out it was a it, it, not a specific depressive disorder. She was sort of on the cusp of that, mm-hmm. some other stuff going on. But and that's not unusual, though, for an adolescent to display depression in angry outbursts. And definitely, um, it could definitely be related to substance use as At well. At least it's a flag. It's a start, oh, right? To if, say if something is yeah, something's not new. If it's something that they had been. It's about, 
It's about functioning. I mean, frankly, mm. when I go out and train about mental health issues and substance use issues, the thing that I say is, is the functioning in some way, shape, or form not good? You know, is their hygiene bad? Is their mood changeable or different from what you're used to seeing? Are they showing up to the things that they used to show up to, or are they absent from the things they used to show up to? So, you know, in you know, how are their relationships? How are how's their met their physical health? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. What's going on with their physical health? So all of those things. So it's all about functioning, really. Okay. Speaking of of functioning, I get a lot of questions from caregivers, parents who ask about their their loved one is so um, enthralled in this addiction. It's taken over their their entire mm-hmm. life. At what point do you set up boundaries? Um, mm-hmm. You know, they always say, I can't let my kid go. I don't want him to be on the street. I don't want him to be homeless. But at the same time, they're stealing everything in the house. You know, they're keeping them up all night because, you know, whatever reason, they're having fights or arguments or it it just becomes a very destructive household, a very unbalanced. That's it. The question of tough love. (laughs) When do you really lay down the tracks of Mm -hmm. tough love? And uh, that's a lot of. The calls I get too so of just hard. where do you you go through so much so maybe years of years. building building it's like an abusive relationship mm-hmm. building problems when you know that as a as a parent as a uh, an adult sibling or or a, a peer sibling as a teenager you're enabling this person so where so, do you draw that line Oh, I'm so glad you <laughs> used that word you know so. I actually have been studying something recently, and actually I'm going to be training about this topic, is um, the tendency to, as a parent, it feels horrible to have to set uncomfortable limits because you're going to get the angry outburst, you're going to get the, I hate you. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I had a parent recently report to me that her son said, I want to kill you. I mean, it can be a very upsetting. You're also, also, there's a huge fear that this person will kill themselves. Or hurt you. Of course. Hurt you or themselves. Of if course. you say as a parent the wrong thing. And so, you know. so the impulse is to, you know, for a lot of parents, is to throw money at the problem. Mm-hmm. I'll send you to, you know, the best treatment program I, that money can buy I'll, I'll buy you know I have you know parents of adult children mm-hmm. who are paying rent and buy, you know filling their pantry with food mm-hmm. and the tendency is to, to sort of say oh you're enabling that bad behavior and what I've studied recently is that first of all we have to be kind to the parents that are struggling and say you're just doing the best you can. Absolutely, you are. That's you su- are. That's such an important message. Uh, I'm glad you said that because uh, that is the truth. Yeah, I mean, the, these are not these are people trying to do the best they can when they love their yeah. child. Let's say. And the and the 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 statement, or rather the phrase that we use, the name that we call it, is codependence, and that's been on people's lips now for decades. It's not a it's it's not an incorrect thing to say. I mean, there is a real definition of that term that exists. However, 
um, I like to think more of pro-dependence, that, you know, because of a number of different things that are going on in the household that are upsetting, people engage in unhealthy behaviors, you know, both the parent trying to deal with their child and, of course, the child that's using substances and struggling with mental health problems. So I don't think there's anything the matter with solid, you know, all boundaries need to be flexible at certain points, but you know, if someone is in danger of harming themselves or others, big time, strong boundaries need to be set. You know, if I find this in our house, here are the things that are going to happen as a result. In other words, if someone doesn't experience the consequences of their actions, what are they gonna learn, right? right? Yeah. So, so if you the, say it, follow through. Say it, follow through. And yes, you're going to find in many cases, despite your best efforts at setting limits, it's not it's not going to be helpful. I mean, it's, you know, I've I've had to sit with parents and say, your you know young adult son who's 20 years old has just stolen jewelry from you. If anyone else stole jewelry from you, wouldn't you call the police? Right. Oh, I couldn't do that to my son. Mm-hmm. Well, but what's he going to learn? that he can keep on doing this yes. to you and to other people. You know, so, and I, you know, it was a, I remember that conversation, it was eons ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday because this poor mother, I said, you know, you're a loving parent. I can understand why this, you know, I don't know what it feels like to be you, but this must feel awful to have to, you know, lay down, literally lay down the law with your son. But mm-hmm. at some juncture, that's, that is the choice that you're faced with, and it, you know, I don't envy anyone being faced with that choice. I, so. I also feel like a good statement to say to parents that are going through that cycle of events of uh, feeling like they are throwing out, they're giving money to someone to live on their own, and mm-hmm. uh, they, the abuse comes back, and the drug abuse, the it just isn't, everything's just the same, same. After a while, just saying, is this isn't, obviously this isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be a change. This isn't working. Yeah. And it gives some strength. But I've said also that it takes going to a therapist yourself as a parent. Yes. I, I say you. this from my own experience. <laughs> yes. um, my son really struggled. One of my sons that I talk about sometimes really, really struggled, struggles with bipolar disorder, but has uh, a self-awareness and gotten it under control over the years to, right. to some degree that I'm proud of. But he went through a huge problem with drug addiction, and um, I was that parent. I mean, you know, trying to have him live independently, forgiving, thinking, believing and forgiving when I knew that it would probably come around to bite us again, and it did, around and around and around. And I personally got strength from getting therapy myself from somebody who was very well-versed in dealing with substance abuse in, you know, in another part of her career. And so I felt like I was getting advice from someone who really knew, and it gave me the strength to, as a parent to realize, okay, if I really lay down, lay down the law, he'll probably be okay. And it did, it did actually, over time, turn out that way. I mean, it was, yeah. uh, I'm, long, I'm giving a long story short version, yeah. but it really did turn out that way. And I feel like so many of the callers that I get, the crisis calls, when people say, what am I going to do? This is so out of control. So if it's out of control with your son or daughter or whoever we're talking about, get help yourself 
to at least change the direction of the wheel. I'm so grateful that you yeah. mentioned that. That is huge. And, you know, some people are adverse to going to a therapist, but some people maybe prefer a support group of some kind. Well, that there in addition are, is so good, too. Oh, my goodness. So Families Anonymous for, for people dealing with spouses that have problems, Al-Anon. Uh, Families Anonymous tends to help parents of children mm-hmm. that are struggling. Um, another organization that you may or may not be aware of is Smart Recovery, which... I've never heard of it. Yeah, no. Smart Recovery, S-M-A-R-T, Recovery. It's really easy to Google. Um, they um, actually train facilitators for six to eight weeks. And so it's trained facilitators, but it's still a support group. And generally, um, they allow people to sort of express their concerns and then do a little bit of sort of what's called cognitive behavioral exercises, mm-hmm. but they take the the religion and spirituality out of it because some people, that's why smart recovery really is great for folks that do not want, you know, because a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs have a lot of Christian ethos and some that makes some people uncomfortable. Smart recovery does nothing that's religious at all. So it's a really yeah. it's good great, to know. great fellowship. Yeah. They do a great job. I mean... For those that are listening, if they throw their child out, whatever age they are, they're not a bad parent, right? I'm gonna. I'm going to say yes to <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> I, I think parents need to hear that because yes, I think as a parent, absolutely, we want to save our children. I think it's a natural instinct that we're going to fix them, and sometimes we just can't. No. We all have limits. Human beings, by their very nature, have limits, and sometimes those rash actions do make things better in the long run. I mean, mm-hmm. you just can't keep going round and round. No, and at some point, I think you have to... And you to have to be safe yourself. Yes, and mm-hmm. you have to find your own peace. You know, and my son stopped taking medication years ago. Um, I had a, And then he started using marijuana, um, which led into dabbing, which we've talked about prior on the mm-hmm. podcast. How okay. dangerous that can be. Yes, I don't yes. want to go into it because we're going to run out of time, but... Um, I had, to, I had to ask him to leave the house. And, of course, I had a lot of guilt. And I oh. think, you know, you go back and forth as a parent. But I knew at that time I said, he has an illness, and the illness can't take both of us. And, and if the end result was that he didn't survive, I had to be okay with that. Wow. And that's, it's really tough for parents to hear that, but to understand it. And to make those decisions, but they have to know that they're not alone. And the the way that I did that was exactly what you said. I found support. I found a therapist. Mm-hmm. I found support groups, and those are the people that I I've, yeah. I've leaned on continuously through the years. But I don't want to minimize how courageous it was for oh, you. Thank you. That I don't was. I don't feel like it was courageous at all. But it's yeah. tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nina, it's fabulous having you here. We could go on and on. You really have such a wealth of information. I just know that people that have the opportunity to hear all of this will really, really, you know, walk away with something they didn't know. You really are just a tremendous, heart of gold and a tremendous help in this (laughs) field. So thank thank you so so much much for your time. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again. Take care. You too. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. 
And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.